Beyond with Mike Kelton season three is brought to you by Happy Buddha Hemp. Happy Buddha Hemp has my all-time favorite CBD gummies that I literally cannot live without. All the details on my fave nightly treats and sick discounts are coming your way, Carol. But for now, let's get this episode started, shall we? Forever. Dog. Um, my parents moved to 210 West 78th Street. That's right. And I moved back in with them after college for mm-hmm. about 10 years. Uh-huh. So as an adult, as I an lived adult. at 210 West 78th Street. Do you know the doorman Patrick? I do. He was a flapper in a past life. He's a comedian in this life. He's got a podcast about it. Everything he loves. Hi, I'm Mike Kelton, and you're listening to Welcome back, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for letting me do that. I've missed you. I've been on a little hiatus because I've been working on a drag queen TV show, but I'm back and I'm really excited to be back. And I also have to say that I appreciate your patience. And because you've been waiting a while, I think we should just hop right back in. So we last heard about my guardian angel at the start of Hometown Haunting Part 1. It was mid-March and I had finally gotten Patrick's number. I got the number because Mariah, the incredibly sneaky intern here at Forever Dog, decided to literally walk by 210 West 78th Street one night after work and ended up speaking with the super of the building, who so graciously gave her Patrick's home phone number because he said, and I quote, you don't seem like a psycho. And I have to say, Mariah's definitely not a psycho. Anyway, we gave Patrick a call and after about a thousand rings, it went to voicemail. A voicemail that said he couldn't receive voicemail. Which, if you remember, the mailbug situation is very suspect to me. If anything, he's a guardian angel. But to Andrew, he says it seems like he's an old man who doesn't know how to set up his voicemail. Suffice it to say, I had to call back. Also, Tracy just told me in the studio it's suffice to say, but... I think it's suffice it to say. So, suffice it to say, I had to call back. All right, I'm calling Patrick again. Here we go. You know what's crazy? I have this, like, insane thought, which is so crazy. I don't think he's going to pick up. Should I just... Hang on. It's like... Like... What if within the last 24 hours, I don't even want to put this energy out there because it's so like morbid, but like, what if something happened to him in the past 24 hours? Is that possible? Is that insane? And honestly, I did start feeling insane because I was calling a man that I hadn't seen in over six years, a man that I wasn't related to that truly might not even remember me. So I gave it a rest for a week. And then we got back into the studio and I tried again. 
And it's important to know that during that week off, I kept thinking about what I would say if he actually picked up. And I didn't really have an answer until right before I called again. I'm just going to say, hey, Patrick, it's Michael, your friend from 210 West 78th Street. Yeah. So I stuck with that. We got, we got it. We'll let it ring and ring and ring and ring. Come on, Patrick, pick up. Come on, Patrick, pick up. Welcome to Verizon Wireless. The wireless customer you called is not available at this time. Please try your call again later. Announcement one, switch two, two. Should we call back? I think we call back. And so I did call back. And again, guess what? Nothing. I was confused. Was this the right number? Honestly, I felt a bit strange calling and recording from a studio every week to nothing but ringing. And because I have anxiety, this made me go right into worst case scenario. I thought maybe something happened to Patrick. Or maybe the super gave the wrong number to Mariah months earlier. Or maybe I had just forgotten how landlines work. Regardless, I had to give it a rest. And so I did. While I was giving it a rest, Carol, I was chatting with almost everyone I knew about Patrick and this season of the pod and the fact that I had booked so many sessions at the Forever Dog studio to make a one-sided phone call on recording and then get an iced coffee and leave. And during one of those conversations, Uni did her damn thing, okay? Here's what went down. I was chatting with my good friend and famous drag queen and politician, Marty Gold Cummings, about the story and the pod and Patrick, blah, blah, blah. And Marty reminded me that they had a friend that once lived in 210 West 78th Street. I know, life is wild. Marty was like, oh my God, I know someone who I think lived in that building. And I was like, okay, bitch, who is that person? And Marty was like, Julia. And I said, Julia who? And then Marty said, Julia Murney. That's right, Julia Murney. So guess what? I got Broadway's Julia fucking Murney in the studio. The reason Julia Marty connected us is because this season of the pod, I'm kind of on the search for this person who was a doorman at 210 West 78th Street. And my question to you is, where did you grow up, Julia Murney? Um, My parents moved to 210 West 78th Street. That's right. And I moved back in with them after college for mm-hmm. about 10 years. Uh-huh. So as an adult, as I an lived adult. at 210 West 78th Street. 210 West 78th Street. And we have confirmation that Broadway legend Julia Murney lived in Patrick's building at 210 West 78th Street for 10 years. And that, Carol, is a decade. But more importantly, did she even know Patrick? Do you know the doorman Patrick? I do. Okay, Julia. Um, what, like, what the <laughs> hell? Like, <laughs> so I went on to tell her the story about how Patrick and I met. So my, my question to you is like, can you talk a little bit about him or like, what is your experience? And I, I don't need you to sugarcoat this. Like, I know that, you know, I don't, you're not going to crush me. Like, what is your experience with this guy, Patrick? Well, so Patrick wasn't the doorman the entire time mm-hmm. uh, that my parents were there. There was a, a guy called Frank mm-hmm. before Patrick. So Frank was there for, for several years. And then it switched over to Patrick. And he was definitely um, the kind of guy 
who, um, when the weather was nice, mm-hmm. I was always aware of him. He would like to go outside mm-hmm. and lean against the sort of low wrought railing mm-hmm. and say hello. Because there used to be, um, it's moved now, just mm-hmm. in the past year, there used to be a boys' school a block uh, west, mm-hmm. um, collegiate. And okay. um, a block east is PS87, which is an elementary, a public elementary gotcha. school. So in the mornings and in the afternoons, basically at the same times every tons day, of foot traffic. there were tons of foot traffic and kids. Mm-hmm. And so he would be out there and he would say hello and mm-hmm. he would um, chit chat mm-hmm. with anyone who wanted to chit chat. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I never really had super deep conversations mm-hmm. with him. But my um, my very clearest memory mm-hmm. of him. So for 24 years, mm-hmm. until my parents sold that apartment and moved, um, I had a pancake breakfast on New Year's Day, which started as a lark mm-hmm. and ended up becoming a thing. I love it. And it happened to become a thing somewhat in the theater community. Mm-hmm. Like our joke was like, if... If the photographers we see on a red carpet show up here, we're, we'll have jumped the shark and it's over. <laughs> um, but I would make pancakes uh-huh. literally all day for people, I mean, for over 100 people. It was, it got really large. It sounds amazing. It was fun. It made me very happy. And so his first few years that Patrick was there, mm-hmm. uh, once he caught wind of like that this was a thing, mm-hmm. he would say to me, but he would say to me like, in October. Mm-hmm. You gonna do pancakes this year? <laughs> like prepping. Somehow internally prepped. I found out um, later that there were certain days like when when New Year's Day fell on I don't know, probably a Saturday or Sunday or uh-huh. whatever. He came in, he didn't need to. He wasn't contracted. Because, oh, that was the other thing. We didn't have, we only had him during the weekdays. Monday through Friday. Not on the weekends uh-huh. and not at night. And he would come in four pancakes and then as the years progressed one year I came over in the morning from my apartment which I you know I did finally move out and um uh to set up my parents apartment and there was in the lobby uh Patrick wasn't there at the moment, mm-hmm. but I walked into the lobby and there was a round table in the middle of the lobby upon which Patrick had put a box of Bisquick, a thing of syrup, a plate, like like a welcome to pancakes uh-huh. thing, completely of his own accord. Uh-huh. And he did that for se- the next until it was done, until my parents sold. And my parents basically sold at the uh, kind of at the simultaneous time that he left the building. Mm-hmm. But um but people would come upstairs and be like, that's so cute, that little like picture scape you did. And I was like, you did, Julia. No, no, that would be Pat. <laughs> I didn't do it. And then he started hugging people. Okay, well, people that's would, probably yeah. around the time that we met because he would say to me, give me some Jesus. And that meant a hug. And I told you, I'm like not a religious person, but I was like, this is sweet. You know, this is sweet. It's not harmful. It's I not mean, harmful. He wasn't like saying, give me some Jesus and then like proselytizing and <laughs> no. giving you pamphlets no. about like no. whatever. No. And people would come upstairs and be like, oh my God, like pat the door. He was like, I remember you from last year. And then he would hug me. And some people would be like, he said that to me. I wasn't here last year. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's no way he could possibly be remembering uh-huh. all of these people. But he would hug them. And I do remember thinking 
not really knowing very much about uh-huh. him or his um, uh, belief system totally. or anything. But I, I kind of had some notions that maybe he had, how do you phrase it, some antiquated ways of looking at the world in terms of race, mm-hmm. in terms of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I just remember one day thinking, if I went to, and I always made him a plate of pancakes and bacon uh-huh. and would send it down. I thought, if he knew how many gay men he was hugging hello this morning, <laughs> would he be shocked? <laughs> oh. Or would he be sort of into that in a weird, not like a creepy way. Well, maybe but maybe suppressed way. Yes, uh-huh. yes. I, I, this is me talking wildly at a turn no. because I do not know his life. Totally. I mean, this is I why wouldn't be I wanted surprised. to talk to you. Totally. It was hard to hear because it was something that deep down I, I was actually a little worried about. I was aware at the beginning of this process that I was searching for a man that I knew not much about. And as a person living in today's world, mostly, I know that you don't really know a person until you do a full background check and Google search. And Julius Kander was reminding me of this. What if Patrick never realized I was gay? I know it's hard to believe, but honestly, what if he didn't? And what if because of that, his belief system or otherwise would have made him not like me because of the way I am. And that made me nervous because I, Mike Kelton, a severely loud and proud gay man with rainbow angel wings, am doing a podcast about how I think this man is my guardian angel. And what if this man, I'm going to say it, hates the gays? That's a fucking problem. Okay, we're nervous and we're right to be nervous. Anyway, I went on to tell Julia about my specific interaction with this man. In the middle of July is when I decided to like say hi to Patrick. And he said hi to me, said, you know, you should jump up and down at the goodness of who you are, which I thought was so, so nice and out of nowhere. And then legit, Julia, he looked at me and he said, something's going to happen in two weeks that's going to change your life. Okay. That is not, I did not know that, Patrick. Uh-huh. And then two weeks later. So I then went on to tell Julia that, babe, I booked that roll in hairspray. Wow, that's incredible. Right? I mean, I, I, I mean, that shows to go, yeah. Shows to go, yeah. Like, you, people show different people different sides of them. Yeah. I, I would never have said, oh, of course, that's so Patrick. Mm-hmm. When you tell me that story. Huh. Well, dang, I, I, I guess I wish I had had better conversations with him mm-hmm. or I wasn't meant to have those conversations with him. Mm-hmm. Maybe you were mm-hmm. and not me. It's not a one size fits all kind of magic. Magic mm-hmm. is is specific. Mm-hmm. That day you were supposed to not be like, old dude saying hi again. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to wave and keep going. It yeah. was it, maybe it was just meant for you. Mm-hmm. And maybe anyone who knew Patrick even well would be like, he did what? <laughs> I don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah, But I, it I doesn't was... mean it didn't happen to you. <laughs> totally. Because it did. And it did something for you and to you. And that is... That's why it's magic. That's I why mean, it's magic. 
Carol, my spirit guides have a message for you. Just kidding. They had nothing to do with this, but I genuinely want to let you know about some of my fave new things that have made my life and sleep habits a bit more chill and vibe-worthy in the past year. CBD products from our season three presenting sponsor, the iconic Happy Buddha Hemp. I've been truly obsessed with the full spectrum CBD gummies for a while now. And I gotta say, sleeping through the night is an absolute vibe. It's made me more alert during the day and brought my general anxiety to an all time low, which is a vibe. If you haven't tried CBD products before, don't fret, Carol. I was also a noob when I tried Happy Buddha Hemp products and I quickly found the perfect dose for me. I recommend starting with the gummies and taking half of one 30 minutes before bed and see how it feels. The next night, do the same amount or go even further to really connect with your subconscious in the dream world. I can confidently tell you that I have tried and love all of the HBH products, which is why I literally asked them to sponsor my podcast. I know, it's sick. So if you want to get in on the CBD life, Head over to happybuddahemp.com and use the code BEYOND for 30% off. Again, it's 30% off at happybuddahemp.com using the code BEYOND. This works for all of the products, Carol. So go ham and have a good day. (laughs) I started this journey searching for a man that I truly thought was an angel, a really good person, a guy who sent emails of encouragement to someone he met once on the street and literally received nothing back. Without getting in touch with him, this interview with Julia had really high stakes for me. I know she's not someone who knew him well, but to me, that was even more of a reason why I wanted to hear from her. I know I'm not supposed to go into interviews looking for a way to prove my narrative, but If I'm being honest, for this one specifically, I absolutely did. So while I was completely gagged to chat with Broadway icon Julia Murney, I was a little bit discouraged to hear what Julia had to say. To her, Patrick was just a person that throughout the years living in that building, she barely interacted with him. Besides the pancake party, which honestly, we love. But to her, he was just a man who did his job and said hi to lots of people when the weather got nice. And to her, he was a man who might have had antiquated views. And that, if we're being on, doesn't sound like a guardian angel to me. So when Julia walked out of the studio that day in early June, I was like, hmm, okay. Well, let's pause the Patrick story for a second. And Carol, just before we do that, I want to let you know that there's something we are purposefully leaving out of this Julia interview that will come back towards the end of this season. But if you're curious to hear us chat about Julia's Broadway career, we put it at the end of the episode. And trust me, it's amazing because Julia's an icon. A what? A Broadway icon! Yeah! So, Carol, the same week as this recording with Julia... I was visiting my good friend, Jenny San Angelo, comedian, writer, human, and new mother, which was actually the reason for the visit. I was meeting her new baby, Theo. And during this meet-cute, I was talking about the pod and synchronish-bish, as I do, and then Jenny told me that I had to talk to her good friend, Molly Beach Murphy, 
who had an incredible story that I needed to hear that she actually published a few years back. And that story was honestly exactly what I needed to hear at the time. So Molly graciously came into the studio. Um, Molly, I want to know a little bit more about you. And I know you're a playwright. Uh-huh. Um, and you grew up with Jenny. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the, well, we went to college people. together. Went to college together. Yeah. Uh, can Tell me a little bit about what you do here in New York. Yeah, I'm a playwright. Um, and I also write um, books for musicals. Mm-hmm. And the book of a musical is all the unsung parts. I guess this is the musical episode, babe. Thank you, Uni. I have a BFA and I do know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly so, I do know that. Um, and you, uh, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Galveston, Texas, which is uh, an island south of Houston. It's on the coast, mm-hmm. um, the southeast coast of Texas. And you talked about the cow. Like, what was it like? You know, tell me a little bit about growing up on a farm and having cows and which... I grew up in Westchester, and it's very different. Uh, so tell yeah. me about that. Yeah. So uh, Galveston's is like this sandbar. Um, and um, yeah, it, it, it's like a town, but the island's really long. So you can live in like a really rural spot, which is mm-hmm. where I kind of live. So you live kind of like 10 feet from the beach and like next to a cow pasture. So it's a little sort of like country beach life. <laughs> that sounds beautiful. It has like weird tropes. So Molly was in the studio to tell us a story about her wonderful dad, Joe, and the day her dad passed. Um, I do want to know if you're comfortable. I would love for you to talk a little bit about your dad. Oh, yeah, sure. Cool. Um, My dad. Um, He was great. <laughs> um, He was also born in Galveston. Um, He he was a really, really, really smart person. He was really um, intellectually curious. He was very good at poker, but not because he was because he was very good at reading people and was very interested in sort of people and why they do the things they do. Um, I think that's kind of why I do what I do. I think it's the same interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just sort of always got on like a house on fire. I mean, we were always really close yeah um and he was like the life huge presence the life of any party could talk to anyone i think one of the things i most admired about him was that he he just had no sense of um class i mean socioeconomic class Mm. i mean like talked to everyone treated every single person with like divine human dignity Mm -hmm. um yeah so he was great So then I asked Molly to read the story she wrote about the day her father passed away. It's only an estimate, but I've done the math. My father died while I was in a rundown hotel lobby in Newburgh, New York, picking up my race number for a half marathon that would begin in just under an hour. Dad, at 62, was still an impressively healthy athlete. He swam a mile a day, rode his bike twice daily, and played volleyball every weekend. One of the big regrets of his life was that he could not persuade me to take an interest in the game, despite the fact that I had, quote, the shoulders for it. That Saturday morning that June, while I was driving north from New York City to Newburgh, he went out riding along the marshes in our hometown of Galveston, Texas. The woman who lives in the old Victorian house along this secluded road saw Dad standing next to his bike just before 7 a.m., kickstand down, staring out into the marsh. 
Weeks later, when she met with my mother and me, she repeated several times, it's such a peaceful place to go. A few minutes later, after seven, a kayaker was driving toward the boat ramp just beyond the old Victorian house where he saw Dad laid out in the street beside his upright bike. Dad had suffered a massive heart attack. We've been told that he may have been dead before he hit the ground. While local EMTs were trying to resuscitate him in the street, I was going about my meditative pre-race rituals. A blind sunscreen and chafing stick, organizing my gel packs and water bottles. I sat in a parking lot and I wrote a race blessing on the tops of my feet in Sharpie. It was an Edmund Hillary quote that I use for all my long races. It's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. Dad was in transport to the hospital when I lined up with the other runners. We complained about the heat. The race was supposed to start 15 minutes ago. Who's in charge here? After more grumbling, the air horn sounded and we inched forward. My father was pronounced dead painfully close to the moment I crossed the start line. And then I ran for two and a half hours. As I ran in New York, phone calls shot around town in Texas. A cousin on the police force heard the radio and thought, that sounds like Joe Murphy. The woman who lives in the old Victorian house called her friend Mona, who called a friend who is married to a woman whose dad knew my father. Was it really Joe Murphy? Who knows his wife? I watched boats sail up the Hudson River. I noted several dream homes. I was annoyed at the lack of water stations along the route. An hour into the race, I took a walk break and called my mom, just for a few minutes of distraction. She talked to me cheerfully about nothing at all. Had I heard about the old army surplus store closing after 40 years? Where were my friends and I going to eat after the race? After a little more pleasant nothingness, she said, This is a race. Stop chatting and start running. I obeyed. Less than two minutes after our phone call ended, police showed up at my mother's door. And I kept running. The young police officers didn't tell her that Dad was dead. They can't legally, so they asked her, did she know where her husband was? And then, what was he wearing when he left with his bike? Mom answered dutifully, and the officers shared a look between them. They said Dad had been found, and Mom would need to go to the hospital immediately. They would be happy to give her a ride. My mother, forever the cool customer, drove herself. The nice young policeman offered to bring the back bike to the house. Later, my mother told me she just knew. And as I ran through the Hudson Valley, my right hip started to ache and I became increasingly worried about sunburn. There was no cloud cover or shade and the sun was brutal. When I started to overheat, I poured water over my head, which filled my eyes with sunscreen, all adding to the burdensome surprise that the race organizers hadn't closed the streets to traffic. I was in the 10th mile when my brother and mother identified my dad's body. On their way out of the hospital, my brother pulled out his cell phone to start making calls, but my mother refused. I'm not doing this on a cell phone. I'm going home. We're doing this at home. When she arrived, cars were already parked in the driveway. She had told no one, but it became apparent that many, many people had known before she did. In the 12th mile, I bottomed out. The heat, the badly paved roads, the hills, my fucking hip, the unbearable sun, those stupid dream homes, fucking cars everywhere, I was cooked. 
I thought about calling my mom, but my battery was almost toast and I needed the GPS to track the race. It was at this point that I heard a male voice yell from behind me, Hey you, run! Let's go, this is a race, are you kidding me? Walking in the 12th mile, go! I turned and a wiry middle-aged man was yelling at me, Just fake it, let's go, run, run with me! I'm a feminist, but I've always responded to strict authoritative males, so I ran. We ran. The entire rest of the race, I ran side by side with this stranger, our feet in perfect sync. We didn't speak a word all the way to the finish line. Once we crossed, I thanked him. He told me his name was Victor, and we parted ways. In Texas, a plane ticket had just been bought on my behalf to leave LaGuardia at 6 that evening. I met up with my friends, and we drove over to Beacon, New York, to have brunch. I pulled out my phone, and it was dead. We ate a beautifully extravagant meal, beer, sausage, cheese fries. Triumph. Our bodies were trashed, every ache and grimace a trophy. At this point, my mother had been trying to reach me for two hours. Finally, in an unbelievable moment of clarity... She realized that in the cell phone she never uses, she had the number of one of my racing friends. How on such a day she could remember this, I will never know. But just as we were paying for our meal, and I was promising myself not to worry about the cost until tomorrow, my friend's phone rang, my mother's name on the caller ID. I I answered, and then came the simplest string of words and the most life-altering sentence I've ever heard. Molly... Your father died this morning. The rest of the day is a hysterical blur. Racing back to Manhattan, stopping at my apartment for 15 minutes so I could shower while friends threw clothes in a bag. At LaGuardia, a ticketing problem arose. A middle-aged gate agent took me under his wing. He changed my flight immediately, gave me a business class ticket, gate passes so my friends could wait with me at the gate, as well as five drink tickets so I could, quote, make some friends on the plane. Just before I dashed off to security, he took my bag and we hugged goodbye. His name was Victor. By the time I sat in the family living room in Texas, I'd been up almost 24 hours. How did I wake up in New York to run a race and end up in Galveston without a dad? How was I carried along by possibly the only two victors I've met in my entire life? If it were a dream, it would mean something. If it were a dream, the victors would be a lesson in accepting help, in surrendering to powerlessness, in becoming, somehow, victorious in the end. But the next day, and all the days after that, would only continue the whirlwind that began in the marsh that June morning. I long for that race the one I hated running, with the bad roads and the heat and the sun and the cars and the not-enough-water stations, those seemingly miserable two and a half hours before the world ended, before I met anyone named Victor. The road, when the journey was still linear, when I could put one foot in front of the other and be assured that I was still moving forward. I thanked Molly for sharing something so personal, thoughtful, and I'm going to say it, extremely touching. It made sense to me that my friend Jenny had the inclination to connect me and Molly after chatting about Patrick and Chris and 
father and baby Carrie. But what I didn't expect was to be so moved by Molly's story. So I went on to ask Molly a couple follow-up questions. Had you not thought before the fact that in the trauma of the day and the chaos of running to a flight and finishing a race and meeting up with your friends and having brunch, that it was interesting that you sought out the man and said, what is your name? And then also the, the flight attendant or the, the guy working at the Southwest counter that you said, like, what is your name? Yeah, that's interesting. No, I think, I mean, I think I just kind of naturally sought that guy out and like naturally asked his name because we were chatting and I think I just kind of do that because my dad always did that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just kind of something built in that I think is important. And then I think at the airport, I think what he had done was just so above and beyond. I wanted to thank him. And so I asked him his name so that I could say, thank you, Victor, you know, so that you can really see someone as a human being and thank them instead of like, thank you, bye. Yeah, (laughs) Um, Yeah, thank you, babe. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Totally. So I think those are the, that's like the mechanism that led to the strange coincidence. Something that your father had taught you. Yeah. Will you tell me from your perspective, like, like a little bit about yourself and your belief system, kind of like where you're at? Yeah, my belief system. Um, I guess I'm like a proud atheist. Mm -hmm. What I believe about this story is I believe that it was a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I, I believe that it's our job in life to make meaning out of all of the arbitrary things that happen in the universe. Mm-hmm. The universe was created somehow. It it, it doesn't care about our existence. Um, everything is chaotic and coincidental. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're here, so we have to make meaning because that's how we learn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess I believe that this thing happened was a coincidence, but it created extraordinary meaning for me, and that that is uh, vital to my understanding or my uh, of trying to understand something as large as grief or mm-hmm. um, major events in one's life because it really is incomprehensible right mm-hmm. we we love people so much and then they're gone how do we make sense of that i have mm-hmm. no idea um but there are events around us that we try to soak out meaning to try and reckon with all of that mm-hmm. so i guess that's sort of what this is for me it's a it's a bit of a uh coping mechanism yeah and i say that is a good thing mm-hmm. in grief group they're always like you gotta cope and if you're like, we would come in and we'd be like, I just cried and ate chocolate and screamed. And they were like, great. <laughs> you know? They're like, if you're not hurting yourself for others, go for it. We have to find comfort somewhere, somehow. Because mm-hmm. none of it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. A lot of things make no sense yeah. <laughs> to me. Uh, which is, I think I hear what you're saying and it makes me think, uh, it makes me feel like I have a little more context to this kind of journey that I'm on. Like I'm, mm. I'm always kind of searching and seeking for some type of meaning uh, within all of this chaos, you yeah. know? Um, and this this guy who this is has like prompted this kind of season mm-hmm. could definitely have been um, just ra- a random kind person. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting and helpful to me to kind of put a meaning uh, to this person. Right. Uh, which... To me, is more of like an a, 
a, a study of optimism. Yeah. No, th- that really resonates with me. I'll, I'll tell a quick story, I, I guess. I love it. Um, the night before my dad died, he was out riding his bike and he came home and we lived next to this cow pasture and there was this cow on the ground and he like called up to my mom and was like, this cow's dead. Um, what are we going to do? And my mom went out to look at the cow and she realized that it wasn't dead. It was giving birth. So they went up and they got a bottle of wine and they sat by the cow pasture and watched this cow give birth to this little calf. Um, and then he my dad died the next morning uh-huh. and I came home and I was home for quite a long time. And I would just this cow was there, uh-huh. this newborn calf who just every day was getting like bigger and bigger and. Um, and it was the symbol of like, well, my dad gets more dead every day, but there's this cow who was just born, who was born right when he died. Is that my dad? Yeah. <laughs> you know, just sort uh-huh. of like sitting there, like That's... trying to make sense of all that. It makes no sense. But these symbols that feel very meaning, it's just as important that they feel meaningful as anything else, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. The more Molly shared, the quieter I got in the studio. Her story about the two victors was extremely touching. But this aside that she almost didn't share about a calf being born the night before her father passed that she has since attached meaning to was something that I will truly never forget. Here's Molly again. My first belief is that you look and he who seeks beauty shall find it. Uh You know, yes. Um, if you're looking for it, you'll find it. Um, And 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 we need that. You know, like someone Mm -hmm. who has lost someone, you need a reminder of Mm -hmm. these people because they live inside you. It's important to keep them alive. So, of course, you're going to like double take at someone on the street and kind of gasp because they look kind of like this person. Mm -hmm. You are looking for them Mm -hmm. and you should be because why would you want to let them go? Towards the end of this recording, I brought up a movie I had seen the week prior that I found pertinent to this conversation. And that movie was the documentary about the life of Mr. Rogers called Won't You Be My Neighbor? I'm sure if you'll let me ramble just a second about Mr. Rogers. I love. (laughs) It's not just Mr. Rogers and the idea of kindness. And um, it's not just um, what you should do. It's absolutely radical. Um, And and especially (laughs) as, as the climate as the climate continues to worsen, as we go further and further into climate change, and there's more and more people who can't, uh, and as the population explodes, and as there's more and more people who can't sustainably live where they live, and people have to move to other places, and because people are moving to other places, our global attitudes about people who are moving to other places will continue to deteriorate. Um, That's just kind of where we're headed. And to be able to stand in the face of all of that and say, actually, the most radical thing we can do is um, empathize with one another. And this, again, got me thinking about Patrick. So I had one final question for Molly. Would you ever entertain the idea of going back and uh, thanking or, or seeing if he works there? Yeah, I thought about it and that that would be like really great. And I haven't wanted to do it because I just need the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like so grateful to him and what he did for me really helped me. Um, I had like three drinks on the plane and passed out, you know, and I had never, hadn't slept in forever. Um, 
But yeah, I don't even know what I could give back to him. I guess to say thank you. I don't know why. I I don't know why. I'm just a little spooked by it. Okay. Well, honestly, I get it. I understand Molly not wanting to reach out. But obviously, that's not how I feel. So Carol, guess what I did? I called Patrick one more time. I feel like we should try calling at 1111. I know it sounds crazy, but like part of me thinks that if we call him at 1111, he'll pick up. I know it sounds psycho. I just have this weird like feeling of like all the signs happening. And I've said I've seen that number. So many times. Hello? Hello? Patrick? Patrick? Patrick, are you there? Patrick? Hello, Patrick. Are you there? Hello. Patrick? Yeah. Hey, Patrick. It's um it's Mike Kelton calling. I um I don't know if you remember me, but Romeo, uh the super gave me your phone number. Who gave it? Romeo the super at two ten West seventy eighth street. Oh, oh, I haven't been there in years. Uh, Patrick, yeah. I don't know if you remember me, but we met in front of the building at 210 West 78th Street. Uh, I used to bring you coffee, and um, we met years ago, and you were very kind to me, and I wanted to call and thank you. Oh, so do you live in the neighborhood? I, I do. I live in I live in New York. Ah, wonderful. I've been pretty ill, and it's hard to pick up the phone. I'm so sorry. I, I, I have somebody with me, but he just went out. And uh, he takes care of me and gives me my, something to eat. Or, what a wonderful. Uh, Anthony lives in my building. I've known him for years. But I haven't been able to get downtown. How's everything down there? Do you know? I, th- I, I know that everything is pretty good downtown. Um, and they definitely, they miss you because I talked to Romeo uh, about you. Yeah. And what is your last name? Kelton. Uh, I'm a, a tall guy with red hair and freckles. Um, I used to bring you coffee at the, bu- I wasn't, I didn't live in the building, but I used to be in the neighborhood and I would bring you coffee. Um, you, you were so, so kind. You're just one of the kindest people I've ever met. Oh, thank you. You're well. You're welcome. Um, I don't know if yeah. Uh, when we met, I was I was living on the block for a summer, and I walked by and you said you said hello to me every morning, and then I think you could tell that I was not feeling well one morning, and you 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 said that good things were coming my way. Basically, do you remember this? Yeah, 
You do? Good things are coming your way. Yeah, and you said, um, you basically said that something was going to happen in two weeks that was going to change my life. And then I ended up getting a job that really was changed my life. And then you said, give oh, me... Oh, great. S- yeah. Do you have the job now? Uh, yes. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And life was good? Life is life is very good, yeah. Oh, that's great. Is that your number that comes up on the thing, 914? This is my number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you married or are you young enough to be married? Not Not married, no. I have a special person in my life, but I'm not married. You can hear me getting nervous, and so I quickly change the subject. Um, Patrick, I have a question for you. Would you... I don't know... You live in the Bronx? Yeah. Would you be... Can I bring you lunch one day? Could we meet up? I bring you coffee to say thank you again and say hi? Oh, yeah, you could say hi. Uh, that, 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 you, when would you be in the box? Um, in the next couple weeks, maybe next week. Uh, what, what is your last name? I'm sorry. That's okay. Kelton, K-E-L-T-O-N. You used to email me um, when I was on the road. You would send me emails. Oh, God, I don't do that anymore. And what's your first name, Kelton? Uh, Mike. Michael. 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 I'm tall. Yeah. Well, listen, give me that number. It's on my thing. 1914. It's 914 um, 582. Let me see if I got that now. 1914 582. Patrick, where do you, what would be a good day to come and bring you lunch if that's cool with you or coffee, whatever you'd want? Oh, I put a day with you together. Now that I have your cell phone, I'm vaguely trying to remember you, but I've lost a lot of my memory, unfortunately. Uh, if if this helps, I I'm very tall. I um I have red hair and um freckles, and you used to say, "Give me some Jesus," and then we would hug. Oh, oh God. Yeah, this special friend of yours is a girl. My my friend, the special person. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a it's a guy. Oh, that's all right. I was just wondering who he is, you know. Oh but, yeah. Uh, so that's important is that we love one another. I agree. I agree. But that sounds great. You know what I will do? I promise you, Michael. I'll call you. Okay, great. I got every everything written down. Great. Yeah, I would love to. Um, I would love to see you in person and bring you a coffee or, or lunch, a sandwich, whatever you'd want. Just because you really, um, you really mean a lot to me, and the things you said to me really helped me at a time that I was struggling. And it, um, you really helped my life in a really wonderful and beautiful way. And I'm, I'm very grateful. Yeah, and, and you have a regular full time job now. Yes. Oh, yeah, good I, for you. I work in. How, a, how old are you? <laughs> I'm. How old are you, man? <laughs> I'm 32 now. Oh, you're a youngster. Mm-hmm. 32. God bless you. Thanks, Patrick. But listen, Michael. 
I, I will definitely call you, and we'll get together, and you come and visit the past. You don't drink coffee. Great. Just bring yourself and a hug. I'll just bring me in a hug. I will definitely do that. Um, All right, if you want to bring your friend with you, bye. Oh, that's nice. Uh, you just so, so I'll just wait, so and you'll call me and tell me a day that works for you. Yeah, okay. I promise you. Okay, Patrick, it means a lot to me, and I'm I'm really glad that I was able to talk to you today. Thank you, Michael. Me too. Of course, thanks, Patrick. I promise you, I'll call you. Okay, I look forward to it. Love you, brother. Love you too. This is me in real time responding to the call, talking to Alex, who's sitting at the desk in the studio. <laughs> I, I like I feel like so emotional and like sad. You know what I mean? Like the I think there's like so many there's like so many things I feel right now, but like. I think the idea that the idea that he's alive and like able to like talk is amazing and I could feel I could like feel that he like kind of knew although he didn't his memory was murky but then he kept saying Michael right and he did call me Michael but he said Michael a couple times and I was like oh he's getting it he's like getting who I am and and then at the end when he's like, love you, brother, like, and then he said, I was nervous that he was going to be like homophobic or like, cause I think he is really Catholic. So I was nervous. He was going to be like, oh, you're gay. Like, I don't know why, but I thought he was going to be like, you're gay. Like you can't I, for some weird reason. But he was like, you love who you love. And like, it's beautiful. And, uh, I oh, don't so nice. Isn't it nice? I know. I know. And even his like willingness to like he was looking forward to this. Yeah. And Mike, who knows? When he sees you, he might remember. He I think he'll remember me. I think it like like if someone called me years ago, even now with my memory as it is, and they said, I don't know if you remember me on the street, but you if you're a nice person like that, you're, mm-hmm. that's how you live your life. Mm-hmm. Help you, you do that with many people. Mm-hmm. You make an impact on a lot of people's lives. When you see the person, changes. Mm-hmm. So there's only one thing left to do. We gotta go see Patrick. I listened to that call too many times to count following this recording. I kept thinking about how nice it was to hear Patrick's voice, but also how sad it was that he didn't remember me. Although part of me thinks he did when he repeated Michael three times. I went through some old emails and sure enough, he did call me Michael. I also was floored at the fact that even in a short call where he was trying to remember who I was, I got the confirmation I needed, that this man was not a hateful and closed-minded person. The way he asked me if my special person was a woman made me (laughs) kind of the most nervous I've ever been. Then the way he responded quickly by saying, what's important is that we love one another, was just like the Patrick that I remember, incredibly 
kind. Not only that, but he invited my special person, which you know is Andrew, to come and visit him. And you might be thinking, this is just a nice old man. And maybe it is. Maybe he is just like Molly's victors. And maybe Julia's right. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of magic. And Patrick was magic just for me at that moment that I walked by him over a decade ago. But also, maybe not. If I had never received the emails that he sent, I may have just ended the story right here. Because he is old and clearly not in the best shape, and I didn't want to cause him any more stress. But this is a man that wrote me for six years. This is a human who I would visit every six months, and even though from afar, he saw me come into my own as a young adult in New York. I still wanted to see him and thank him and maybe ask him the question that started this season. Is Patrick my guardian angel? And so I decided to wait for Patrick to call me back. And I waited. Just like you're going to wait right now for next week's episode. Carol, goodbye! And now, as promised, here's me talking to Broadway legend Julia Murney about what? Broadway! Julia, uh, before we get into the reason why you're here, we have to talk a little bit about uh, your theater career. Um, You have done many incredible things. I told you that. I basically grew up listening to Wild Party in my car. (laughs) Um, Truly my dream going to Michigan. I just was like, eventually people will realize I should play Queenie. I was going to say, whose part did you sing with most often? Well, Queenie. Not, okay, curious, curious. I just like to know, you know, <laughs> there are lots but of I options. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Your vibrato has taken me through some dark times in my life. It'll, it'll give you a rough sea, yeah. <laughs> um, so before we get into the other stuff, uh, what has been and it doesn't have to be the, the peak, but what has been one of the most fulfilling things about your theater career so far? Uh, in terms of things I've done, you mm-hmm. mean, I mean, the wild party, mm-hmm. it was a long time ago, but it was definitely um, because it was an original. I, I, it was written on me for mm-hmm. four and a half years leading up to the actual production. And that's ask anyone who does musicals mm-hmm. specifically to have something that feels like yours is hyper special mm-hmm. and it's not something i when i was in school that i thought to dream about totally when i was in school i was just basically like maybe i'll be fontaine someday mm-hmm. like that's whatever it was lame as time so <laughs> yeah it was lame um, time and you went to uh, syracuse, syracuse right yeah. yeah amazing and um so yeah so i didn't there were it's interesting because there were things that i you know sugar plum fairy dreamed about mm-hmm. And then there were the, the th- things I didn't know to Sugar Plum Fairy Dream about because mm-hmm. it didn't seem like a, a thing, <laughs> like originating a show, mm-hmm. like um, actually becoming friends with writers that you admire, mm-hmm. never mind becoming friends with other actors that mm-hmm. you a- admire. Mm-hmm. And I mean, last night 
I went to see Beetlejuice on Broadway. I can't wait. Super fun. I can't wait. (laughs) And I have a bunch of friends in it. Mm -hmm. And I got to see all my friends shine like sparkly diamonds, which makes me as happy as possible. But then as we're sitting there before the show started, seating, sitting right in front of us comes down the aisle, John Kander and his (laughs) husband, Albert, who I know Mm -hmm. quite well. I I call him my boyfriend Mm -hmm. (laughs) because like my boyfriend should be who John Kander is. Because he is. Except for gay. Except for gay. That's the only part that it should change. But uh, he is the most wonderful, kind, extraordinary man, as is Albert, his Mm -hmm. husband. Um, And so I got like a full visit with John, Mm. which made me so happy. But I've been in my car and with the random radio on and all of a sudden New York, New York comes on the radio. Mm-hmm. That came out of his hands, mm-hmm. his brain. And I know that guy. He hugs me. Hello. Mm-hmm. That's not something as a theater you know, student mm-hmm. that it ever occurred to me to dream about. Mm-hmm. And that is like a that is magic. You it, think of that song. That is a magical song. And it is. I have done concerts like in Malaysia mm-hmm. in and there is a song of his that I sing and I often say like if you think you don't know the work of Kander Neb you do they mm-hmm. wrote this and this and this and this and they wrote also wrote a song that begins dun, dun, da, 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 da. and even in Malaysia baby they're like <laughs> oh they know like it's one of a handful of songs that are so so famous mm-hmm. and that came out of his brain and his sweet hands so, I mean, while I say that Wild Party was a highlight, uh, mm-hmm. and it actually, it absolutely was. I mean, I did a show the first time I worked. I knew John mm-hmm. Kander through, like, various people and stuff. And then the first time I worked with him was this show called First You Dream, which we did down at the Signature. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like a big sister to... um World Goes Round. Mm-hmm. So it was a compilation of John and Fred's music, but mm-hmm. it was with a 19-piece orchestra on stage with us. Incredible. And it was it was Norm Lewis and Heidi mm-hmm. Blickenstaff, Matt mm-hmm. Scott, Jim Cla- It was ridiculous. The voices. It was, <laughs> it was very aesthetically pleasing for me. Yes. And, um, uh, and there was a moment when we were rehearsing that. It was put together very quickly. So mm-hmm. they had several orchestrators that they had brought in. Because, oh, it was all reorchestrated mm-hmm. stuff by David Loud, who's a genius. And um, there were these two songs that Heidi and I had been assigned. And we were sort of just figuring out how to, mm-hmm. one was, uh, she was singing Maybe This Time. And mm-hmm. I was singing a song called The Money Tree. Mm-hmm. And I went to David and I said, I I think if you put the way the original, um, what's the word? Like the program uh-huh. was, uh-huh. those songs were I think right next to each other. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think if you put these songs next to each other, they're, they're going to cancel each other out. Mm, they're, good point. They're, honestly, they're wildly yeah. similar. Uh-huh. Um, totally different, but wildly mm-hmm. similar. And um, so he was like, okay, well, what if one like went into the next one? And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, and then we were sort of doing it. And then I went, wait, wait, wait. If we're going to do that, we flipped it and we put Money Tree first and mm-hmm. maybe this time second. And I was like, I don't want to sing the last note. Mm-hmm. I want everything to just hang in the air. Uh-huh. And then the maybe this time kind of uh, underscoring uh-huh. comes in. And Bill Braun, who they who was orchestrating this number, who orchestrated the original Ragtime. I mean, he's... She talented. Yes. Mm-hmm. Knows what he's doing. And um, he was sitting at the table mm-hmm. and John Kander was sitting at the table. And he was like, oh, 
oh, oh, that'd be cool. Because what we could do, we could have like a single string come in and John gets up and goes to the piano and he's putting his hands on the keys. He's like, and maybe we could this, this, this. And we're sitting there. And I remember Norm Lewis was sitting behind me and he went, if we don't move, maybe they won't stop. (laughs) Because it was so... You never get to see uh-huh. orchestrators. Uh-huh. We don't get to see orchestrators doing their thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was, I, I have chills thinking about it. It's like a total theater goober thing, but mm-hmm. it was so highly unexpected mm-hmm. to ever get to see that. Mm-hmm. Oops, my phone fell down, you guys. Um, and, <laughs> for context, the uh, phone for context, fell on the, the floor. Phone <laughs> fell. Um, it was just so. Julia Murney has an iPhone, everyone. And it's really old, (laughs) small. Um, Yeah, it was was thrilling. That is amazing. To get to be part of that. And um, so those kinds of things you don't even know. To totally. be as a you know as a junior in college, you know, like maybe someday yeah. I'll be in rehearsal for a thing <laughs> with John Kander. No, you, I, I certainly didn't yeah. think that way. Who are your inspirations? I think you. When I think of performers that I looked up to through my time, like going to school for musical theater and growing up, it, they were people that were just iconically themselves. And I think you are someone who is iconically yourself. And authentically yourself oh, on stage. Nice. Um, so who who inspired you? I think the first person that I was definitely aware of loving was Bette Midler. Uh-huh. And um, my parents had the Divine Miss M album. Mm-hmm. And I just loved it. Mm-hmm. I was little. But I loved it. And I knew all the words. And I would sing along all the time. And then um, I don't remember the order of things. But like the rose came out, mm-hmm. the film. And um, uh I, I remember seeing concert footage of her and mm-hmm. just how, as I got older, recognizing how she would flip from, what's her name? Dolores Delgado, is that her uh-huh. name? Uh-huh. The Like in the wheelchair uh-huh. with the with the mermaid fin. Uh-huh. And then she would just sing a ballad uh-huh. and tear your heart out. Uh-huh. And I thought that was pretty cool. Brilliant. That yeah. she could spin span so much mm-hmm. um and drop in so authentically mm-hmm, and just mm-hmm. you believed both in a yeah, second i loved her mm-hmm. so much and then there were i mean i didn't grow up doing theater i never did theater till i was in high school wow. um till i went to summer camp mm-hmm. to stage door manor mm-hmm. um heard of it oh sure saw and, the movie about it, camp, <laughs> yep, 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 it. Yep. <laughs> and um so but i grew up in new york city mm-hmm. so i grew up going to shows and my dad is an actor, and so I, it was very familiar. I definitely saw the original cast of Annie mm-hmm. when I was little mm-hmm. because it was like a law. If you were a little girl <laughs> in the 70s, it, you knew Annie. Yes. Done. It had nothing to do with liking uh-huh. theater. It was uh-huh. just Annie. Um, <laughs> we got Annie. <laughs> we got it. And um, so, I mean, I remember like seeing Annie. I remember seeing Stephanie Mills in The Wiz. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And my my high school... Yes. Oh, it must have been high school because I was in camp. Uh, my high school obsession uh-huh. was um, Dreamgirls. Oh, yes. I missed the Evita train completely. Uh-huh. When I eventually did play to uh-huh. Evita, I had to learn the score because I didn't know That's it at so all. Funny. I mean, my, I knew. In my mind, you would be one of those people who would be like, oh, Evita, yeah, got it. Nope. <laughs> not one bit. I mean, I knew Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, because uh-huh. everybody did. But that was it. Wow. And... um but I was on the Dream Girls Express. Mm-hmm. And that was back in the day when you could second act shows quite mm-hmm. easily. Mm-hmm. And we used to go and do, I saw it several oh. times. What stands out in my mind more than anything, because she stayed with it 
maybe the whole run, although I might uh-huh. be misspeaking, was watching Loretta Devine mm-hmm. do Ain't No Party. Mm. That to me was <laughs> yes. the thing that stands out. Because the audience, even though they had been through, and I'm telling you at uh-huh. that point, and I'm not, I can't remember where it falls in the act, whether or not they'd been through I Am Changing at that uh-huh. juncture. But when she sang... It don't take a smarty uh-huh. to realize that even though a man throws confetti in my face, still don't make it no party. The, like this audience of just like white businessmen uh-huh. were like, yes, yeah. Like it was You're suddenly- like, this is New York. It was, it was a pre-RuPaul's Drag Race moment. Yes. And it was so exciting and and thrilling. And and so, I mean, those were the, the kind of performances where it was just That stuck like, with you. Yeah. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.